and welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Pete Wright. Is is this thing on? <laughs> Today, we're talking about Minute 34, which begins with Steve laying down in the cradle of the rebirth device and ends with Erskine beginning his speech. Back on the show again this week, we have Matthew Costello, professor of political science at St. Xavier University in Chicago and author of Secret Identity Crisis. Welcome back, Matthew. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here on Sprockets. All right. I feel like there's a little uh, uh, a little. Um, uh, antagonism <laughs> toward uh, the the wonderful voice acting we have of the Tooch here, huh? Are you not a fan of Stanley Tucci's German? <laughs> yeah, maybe they needed to bring Meryl Streep in to teach him how to do some acting. <laughs> oh. I don't know. <laughs> I would like to. I would just like to to say, Matthew, you are the first uh, Tooch accent antagonist that we've had on the show. Everybody else seems to like him, and you bring up touching the monkey with Dieter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't take me out of the film, but you know, as I watch it more and more, I realize that this is a this is a little stereotypical, caricaturish. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, do you feel the same when it comes to Hugo Weaving? Yeah, kind of. Although his is, <laughs> although he's supposed to be he's supposed to be sort of the evil German scientist, right? He's supposed to be that stentorian stereotype. And so with him, I'm almost willing to buy it a little bit. Right? He's he's Ming the Merciless, you know, in some ways. So he's, he can be. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. And that's why when the accent comes out of that face, it is diabolical. But when it comes out of Erskine, it's a it's a joke. Is that what OK? I'm so let's let's rate them because there's also Toby Jones. So we've got Hugo <laughs> Weaving. That's right. Toby Jones and Stanley Tucci doing German accents for the film. Although. As we know, uh, Toby Jones is not doing German, right? He's uh, where's he from? Switzerland. Yes, this is actually a little less extreme. Okay, right, and so I'm almost willing to give him, say, a six or a seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but and that's the high end for you. Is that where we're starting? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Dr. Erskine, I'm so sorry. I guess I've never had an issue with it because uh, maybe it's because it's Captain America and I'm not I'm not feeling like this is, uh, you know, something that we would have Meryl Streep in where we're looking for like the the bridges on the uh, bridges on the River Kwai. That's not her movie. Bridges on the bridges of Madison County, which is her bridge movie. That's one. The bridges of Madison County. Yeah. Woo. Um, where she's like so authentically trying to play, do that Italian accent and everything. Like, like I feel like here, I don't know, I guess, especially because like when you look at the comics and the way that they wrote like the German English in the comics, it just all feels kind of that. And so I und end sie, up. Und der, und sie. It's, it's comic book <laughs> German. Yes, yeah, it's comic, it is book, exactly. comic book German. Um, but it, but you, you kind of get this impression that, you know, they said, hey, Stanley, can you do German accent? And he said, you know, bratwurst. They said, good. You, <laughs> <laughs> he's actually already on the record as saying he took the role because he'd never done a part with a German accent before, and he was kind of exactly. interested in doing it. 
Well, I wonder if now he's like, I want to go do a, a film where I can do a real German accent. Like, I wonder where <laughs> his just, thoughts are on doing this. food in Italy. So he's he's that's right. You no, know, he's good. Well, this is really kind of we get the uh, to see everything starting right. We get Steve laying down in the cradle of this rebirth device and kind of getting comfortable in this thing that's a little big for him a little too big for him and uh you know erskine comes up and they have that brief little conversation about the schnapps and uh i just love this i love the way maybe this is why uh tucci works so well in the role plus you know just the fact that he's written so kind but like stuff like this the fact that he didn't he you know he didn't save as much schnapps for him as he should have sorry you know, next time. Uh, I mean, how does this this conversation play for the two of you? As far as like, you know, this is the conversation with the doctor and the patient before a big procedure. How does it how does it work? I I like it. Um, I I think that that what's part of what's appealing about Stanley Tucci in this role is that he's not just a doctor. He actually has a personal connection, right? They're, they've become friendly. He's had that, yeah. that fatherly conversation with Steve about, right, you, are, you have the heart. You're a good man. You'll be a good soldier, right? Um, he brings the schnapps and then says, oh, no, you can't have this because you know, you've got a procedure tomorrow. <laughs> I can't have it, but you can, right? Um, and so there's, there's, there's a real personal relationship there beyond just, right, you are my test subject. And that is built here into this. It's part of that whole notion that this is a community creating this, this moment rather than just the product of science. It's really a human moment rather than a scientific moment. And Stanley Tucci brings that human element to it. So that's why this conversation works, I think. Yeah, it, it creates a safe space before, as yeah. you say, a terrifying medical procedure. It's a safe place <laughs> for them to have a human conversation. It's, I mean, and shouldn't that be what doctors do, right, before this sort of thing? Like, just making the patient feel comfortable, not focused on what is about to happen, but focused on something else. And I think I think to that, and it plays really well. Yeah. Um, we do find out at this moment that Howard Stark is here. If you hadn't noticed him very casually just stuck in the back uh, in the last minute, you do find out uh, full on that Howard Stark is here, and he is actually involved in this entire thing. Uh, what do the two of you think? How do you read Steve's reaction when he hears uh, Erskine uh, calling for Mr. Stark to check the levels, knowing that the only interaction that Steve has ever had with uh, Howard Stark is at the expo when he sees Howard Stark trying to build a flying car and it completely failing on him. Do you think that there's any sense of worry? <laughs> well, especially because his response in this scene isn't unqualified confidence, right? Like, if we're ready as will ever be you know there's that's not delivered with uh, as a guy who knows entirely what he's doing uh, it, it we know that he does like we we get to that point but i i don't i don't get the feeling that he's communicating stark's response is unequivocal right how are your levels 100% 100% and then as will ever be yeah. but you know what actually that's a really good point that as you're ever as you'll ever be this is you you've just completely changed my my view as you'll ever be <laughs> is actually defining uh the tools that we have to work with in this facility likely aren't strong enough for the power that i bring right that and we may break stuff but it won't be my fault it'll be because it'll be because you know the fuses couldn't handle what i brought you know, I'm too I'm too big for the joint. That's what I get out. 
Okay. Well, I think that's a that's a better way to read it because that whole thing, like he's confident, levels are at one hundred percent, and yeah, we're going to dim half the, or we may dim half the lights in Brooklyn, um, but we're ready. I've got yeah. all my stuff ready. And yeah, it's it, like he is very much painted as that visionary man of the future who just doesn't have the tools that he needs to create the things that he's already picturing and everything. We see that with the flying car, mm-hmm. right? And and so to that end, yeah, I mean, he has the know-how and knows what he's intending to do here. It's just will the actual uh, you know city of Brooklyn be able to give him what he needs in to order for it up. to be a Yeah. Will Brooklyn live up to his standard? I don't think that communicates any more confidence to Steve in this situation, right? Whether Howard's (laughs) a fraud or the city's going to fail one way or another, it's not great. Yeah. And it doesn't help that the first piece of technology they use is a microphone that does nothing but generate feedback. Yeah. Of course, a microphone. That is such a trope, right? Yeah. It is like one of the tropiest tropes in in film is the tapping of the microphone and the microphone feedback. It's like you've got to include that once you show the microphone. So is it's, Chekhov's microphone? Is that what you're saying? I feel like it is. If there's a microphone, like there will be feedback. There must be feedback. Okay. It's just it's part of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the microphone, though, we have um, what do you, what do you think of the way that Erskine kind of I mean, Howard Stark goes back to do his thing and check more levels and who knows what. Uh, but Erskine talks to Agent Carter and kind of asks her in a way asking, telling, uh, don't you think you'd be more comfortable up in the booth? And uh, of course, she goes there. Uh, what do you read on this as far as like the way Erskine handles the situation and uh, Peggy's place in in this experiment? Because, I mean, as we know, it's Peggy and uh, Colonel Phillips and Erskine seem to be the three people that are kind of running this uh, this project. I, I think there are two things that have to happen right there. Right. Peggy can't be on the floor during the experiment. Right. Because things are going to go haywire and she's got to be up somewhere where she can give a reaction shot to it. So they got to get her out of there. Okay. But second, as she leaves, right, she and Steve have to exchange a glance to completely destroy Pete's argument that Peggy does not love Steve yet. (laughs) (laughs) I see you're you're really leaning in to the canon of this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Because he brought his hammer. Because we get that wonderful shot reverse shot where, where Steve looks at her. And she right turns back to look at him, yeah, and and in in concern, right, for his well being. And so there's there's that moment of affection there between the two, bringing back this notion of community that Erskine started to build, but also generating that building on that from the car to the love scene that's that will come to the dance at the end, right? Um, and so I, I I think this is largely plot point, right? Get her off the floor so she can be somewhere to have a reaction shot that's not in the midst of all of this. And two, have one other moment where she and Steve can foreshadow the love that's to come. I'm going to add on. I'm going to pile on <laughs> to, to the destruction of my own uh, argument. So um, I I think that the, the third party in here is Erskine. And, that, and for me, him saying, don't you think you'd be more comfortable in the balcony is is him acknowledging that there is a burgeoning relationship between the two of them and him saying this is this might get ugly and I don't think you want to be here and I'm looking out for you. It's sort of a paternalistic uh, thing for for him to remind her that 
you I recognize your affection for for Steve and I want to protect you from possibly the worst. And I like that read on it. That that makes me that makes me feel good. Yeah, we, we could go a complete other way and right refer to him as a German misogynist who doesn't want some woman sitting on <laughs> the floor just, of his library, right? Library. We just we're <laughs> snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, Matthew. We had it. We locked it down and now we've planted the seed. That Erskine is just, oh. he's really I'm the sorry, worst. Wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, wouldn't you and your uterus be more comfortable up there <laughs> in the balcony? <laughs> I, I don't want you to have any hysterics down here. You know, the vapors, whatever it is. We are in the rebirthing lab, and I don't want any connotation to create an outburst. Yes. Yeah, of course we don't. We won't mention, of course, that there's still nurses and plenty of other women on the floor. But okay. yes, <laughs> you'll, notice, you'll notice none of those women are speaking. <laughs> right. We do not acknowledge them. We don't. We, they, they don't exist. They don't exist in my eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure why they're there. Because really, what do you need except Howard to turn the dial? I mean, that's all that happens. Well, is it Howard that actually do, throws the the giant? television switch because i feel like there was one guy who does that no i think that's not our minute minute. that's a later minute yeah right now all we know with howard is he goes back to like the little half floor down to go work on some machinery in the background as uh, peggy kind of goes upstairs um to the point about peggy though i do really love that she gives that uh, when she does turn to look at steve there's a little hint of a smile it's kind of like a half smile that she gives him like it's going to be okay and I, I do really love that look on her face. Like, I, that's part of that connection. Uh, and I'm sorry, Pete, but you're wrong. <laughs> I know. I already admitted I was wrong. You don't need to <laughs> lean in so hard. Just need to keep that I half just smile is I love you, yeah. Steve. Fine. We've all said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will. Uh, well, we're going to we're going to talk more about kind of all the pads and stuff in tomorrow's minute. But I do want to acknowledge that there are two pads that are kind of propped as arms that will come down onto Steve. Um, at the moment, I don't see any needles in them. I just want to uh, shout out that at this moment, these pads look very safe, like they're just going to hold you down. And I think that's uh, an important thing because we'll see what these pads actually do tomorrow. Mm. The nurse also, we do see our nurse walking around in here. This is the the lab nurse I had mentioned her uh, the other day, that is Catherine Press, as the Project Rebirth nurse. Uh, she'll have a little more to do, um, but we do see her kind of wandering about. Other than that, uh, let's see, I think that was everything. Did either of you have any other things uh, with all the stuff going on down here with these two before we kind of come back to the microphone? Well, I just need to shout out, I love Dominic Cooper as Howard Stark. I still stand by that. He is the canonical great Howard Stark. Well, the canonical. Okay, so you prefer him over I think Slattery. I, do, I, I prefer Dominic Cooper over Slattery. Oh, I liked him very much. Very much. I agree. Um, not so much as, um, you know, Preacher, but... Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I had such high hopes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, what are your thoughts on Slattery versus Cooper then? So you like Cooper. Do you like Slattery as, as Stark in the later years? Um... I not not so much. I mean, he comes off I, by that point, right? We're we're portraying Howard Stark as the, like the absent father, right? And I think what we're we're not seeing Howard Stark. What we're seeing is Tony's remembrance of Howard Stark in most cases. Sure. Um. And and so right, his 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 dad is you know a refugee from Mad Men, 
and we don't see the great inventor. We see the, the absent father, the, the bureaucrat, the, the autocrat in some ways. But I, I would rather see you know, Howard Stark, the, the, the inventor, Howard Stark, the, the adventurer, Howard Stark, the, the pilot, the guy who can do things and wants to try things, rather than just the guy who's trapped in sort of corporate America, which is sort of how Tony sees his dad in some ways. So I, I think they're they're almost two different characters completely, and I much prefer this guy. I uh, you just the way you you said it is a is a it frames precisely what I've been trying to to like adjust my head to around the different actors playing Tony Stark that it's t- or uh, Howard Stark it's Tony's remembrance of Howard Stark and that suddenly I, it makes a lot of this make more sense to me and the continuity make more sense to me um and and my affinity to Dominic Cooper's portrayal here as a much more congenial sort of fun guy this is this is a guy that maybe yeah, it's legitimately Tony would have missed some of this, right? He would never got to see this part of his dad. So all he remembers is the harder guy. Yeah. And even in later films, I think in one of the end game, maybe the end game film, right? They they mention this to each other. And Cap actually talks about how he liked Howard Stark. Yeah. And, and right. Tony's like, it's not the guy I knew. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great perspective. Yeah, this this feels very much more the dreamer, the kind of I, I I don't know. I always picture him as kind of the Walt Disney, uh, even though I I know that in Iron Man 2, they very much kind of recreated kind of that vibe of of the Walt Disney era, uh, you know, creating those those old uh, the TV specials and stuff like that. Like he really had that in that film. But this version of Howard Stark does actually feel more like that early Disney, like the, the, the dreamer, the, the one with all the big ambitions and everything, the big eyes. So yeah, before he became corporate Disney before, yeah, right. Before he had his own switch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a story, I'm sorry, about Disney that um, at one point he couldn't even draw Mickey Mouse anymore, that he wasn't, he, he used to make Irv Novick. Somebody wanted a, a drawing of the mouse and have Irv Novick drew it. <laughs> right. At one point, Irv Novick got pissed off at him or mad at him and said, you draw your own damn mouse. Um, <laughs> right. Because the, the, just this vision that Disney had become so corporate himself that he'd lost his ability to actually be the creator that he'd been. Um, he could manage creators, but he couldn't be the creator anymore. I, I don't think I ever really thought exactly how much there was a what feels like a direct connection even more so now that you say that to what they've really created with Howard Stark in the films. Like he really does feel in those later films, like the guy who wouldn't be coming up with all of the, the stuff that he came up with at this point in his life. And so it's interesting to kind of hear that, like, uh, like that shift, that mental shift in the character really feels patterned so much more after Disney. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the Disney connection until you brought it up. So then that, that makes perfect sense to me. It's I can see it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, all right. So, so toward the end of this minute, uh, we already talked about the microphone. I, I have never seen someone flick a microphone to check it. <laughs> like usually you tap yeah, the was, microphone. That was rough. <laughs> it is this, it's the strangest thing. And I don't know if that's just something that, that Stanley Tucci came up with on set. Like, can I flick it instead? Like maybe this is something that Erskine would do. It makes me laugh every time I see it because it's just, it's something that you shouldn't do to a microphone. It's just such a strange, way to react to it i love it though well i especially those old ribbon microphones are fragile like i don't want to be flicking around on that thing i'm surprised you could still talk into it 
I, do you think that they knew much of the technology going on inside these little mm. things at the time, though? No, I mean, I know he's a scientist, but he's, well, he's a doctor. He's right? not a microphone he... scientist. <laughs> it's not the microphone. He would be in a different movie. <laughs> um, all right. At the end of this, we're getting uh, the start of his speech. We're going to continue it. We'll probably talk more about it tomorrow uh, because I'm curious, kind of some thoughts of the speech. Ladies and gentlemen, today we take not something, and that's about all we get today. So um, any last thoughts from either of you as uh, this minute wraps up? I got nothing except for I'm thinking I'm trying to figure out what he said next. Mm. Like what what is his next word? I know we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait. I was hoping that Pete, you were going to bring some microphone research today. I didn't. I I did look for the microphone, but I didn't find it. If there's no internet movie microphone database. <laughs> I just had an idea. There are so many uh, of these, but unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I had never heard of the internet movie firearms database, and I had to look it up and thought, oh my yeah. god, it's actually there. Yeah. Yeah. Legit. That okay. that needs to be a new source for you, sir. It does. A new source. There's a. Yeah. Let's see. There was a what was it? There was an automobile database. Uh, I feel like there was some like an aircraft database. Like there's there are a bunch of people who anyone who has a passion in a particular thing has probably started up the database for finding which is in which movie. It's pretty wild. Awesome. But now, Pete, you've got your side project to do the the Internet microphone Movie database. Microphone Database. Yes, IMMDB launching soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Matthew, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, can you tell everybody more about your book and where to pick it up? My book, Secret Identity Crisis, Comic Books and the Unmasking of Cold War America, looks at four, primarily four Marvel comic books. It looks at Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Iron Man, Hulk, and Captain America from 1964 into the early 21st century to mark changes in American popular political culture as reflected in comic books. Um, it is available uh, at all um, remaindered booksellers everywhere. Um, and Amazon. You can get it at Amazon. I believe you can probably find it online somewhere. And if all else fails, I'm sure there are copies of it around the Sprockets studio. <laughs> we can dance. <laughs> we can dance. <laughs> Outstanding. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow to finish out the week, everybody. So until next time, true believers. Today we take not just another drink of schnapps. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.